they sometimes make me the technical guy on Sunday nights, and I'm clearly not the technical guy. We were talking this afternoon, I think at some point, about my uh, really ineptness when it comes to technical things. I really just get messed up, so thankful for some young people who know what they're doing around me, which is good. Uh, Good to be in the house of God tonight, amen? amen? Amen. You guys look all cheery and warm in here. You're not outside where it's nice and cold, which is an amen. A uh, couple of announcements uh, to remind. Our ladies' Christmas celebration is coming up in um, a couple of short weeks. I want to say, uh, let me make sure I get the date right, uh, December, yeah, it's this Thursday, isn't it? It's Where is the ladies? There it is, December 3rd. So, gals, I think there's close to 50 signed up. But if you're not presently signed up, you should sign up. Let me read the announcement to you. It's Thursday the 3rd, 7 p.m. We've rented Valley View Evangelical, which is down off of 117th on Sunnyside Road. Great facilities. We've used it for the last number of years. And uh, there's no need to purchase tickets. Uh, but if you could let us know that you would like to come. And uh, so if there are any of the ladies here tonight... All I know is it's a beautiful setting, and they decorate beautiful tables, and it's really, really a nice time. It's a good time of fellowship, and it's a Christmas party, so there's going to be activities and things going on. There is a gift exchange, an opportunity to purchase a gift for like $10, and uh, they'll, be, they'll do some uh, way of gift exchange. I don't know. I've never been. I just know it's supposed to be really, really fun. So ladies, please come and be a part of that. That'd be great. If you're new to Hillside too, that's just a great place to connect with some of the gals. It really is. So really, it would be super to have you there. I want to let the guys know also next Saturday is our men's breakfast. We don't normally have a December men's breakfast, but we are having a December men's breakfast because we're in a series of really nine months uh, talking about things that are kind of man things. How's that for a title? (laughs) Well, no, it's probably not going to have sports. Uh, But I will say that in our last uh, gathering, we talked about really the nature. Uh, There's probably a couple of bigger chairs, too, guys. I know those are kiddie chairs. Uh, There may be one or twos up. You're great. Okay, good deal. Um, Anyway, uh, we talked about how men have this heart of conquering and being conquer-oriented. And how to bring that, how to bring that uh, really in the kingdom of God and how God designed us as men. And so those functions, so we're going to be looking at another aspect of men. And so fellas, I'd encourage you to come out. It's going to be a great opportunity. Saturday morning, 8 a.m., Gloria's right across the street from where we are right now on Sunnyside Road. It's an excellent breakfast. The charge is $11. That seems like a lot. I know you can pick up a 2, 4, 6, or 8 over at Denny's. But this breakfast has eggs benedict, bacon, sausage. I mean, it has the work scrambled eggs. It's just a phenomenal spread. What's that? It's pretty good. <laughs> and it tastes pretty good. And uh, and it's, it's unlimited, right? And so, I mean, uh, unlimited bacon equals wow okay so (laughs) so make plans to be with us fellas and if you've not come to one of our men's breakfasts or if you're new it's a great place to meet to greet to get connected and it's open really to we we tell guys you got a 13 year old son you got a 15 year old son bring your sons with you because it's a great time for your sons 
also to connect with men whose hearts are for the kingdom of God. And so really want to encourage that. Uh, and then it really is awesome. And then I want to just make mention, uh, we, we're part of a collaboration of churches. About two years ago, we initiated a collaboration of churches in our, really in this North Clackamas area. And seven churches across denominational lines have come together with common purpose, common goal, and common, really, mission to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're hoping to grow that, other churches being exposed to, and seeing the different things that we're able to do on a larger scale and with greater results as the body of Christ comes together and works. We see it as we really are fulfilling the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, that they would be one. And so we're seeing some amazing things. We've had two community-wide worship services at Alder Creek Middle School in the football stadium, and we've had uh, somewhere between four and 500 in attendance and uh, as many as nine churches. Some folks kind of take it as, oh, this is a Sunday where we're going to sit outside. Oh, I think I'll just kind of get my stuff done at home that I normally do. But nevertheless, it's been pretty amazing. And I'll say that to say we're having our second annual Christmas worship service together It will be at Milwaukee Christian Center, and that is on December 6th. So next Sunday night, this is where you really need to make a note of this, next Sunday night we won't be here, okay? So 6 p.m. next Sunday night, Milwaukee Christian, and Milwaukee Christian is on 52nd and Southeast King Road in Milwaukee, and Last year, we had about 350 folks that came together to worship the Lord, and we stayed afterwards, had cookies and coffee and snacks, so you can bring your favorite cookies, you can bake some cookies, you can dance a jig to a phone, you can, (laughs) we're going to have just a great time, we're going to sing a lot of Christmas carols, we're going to hear the story of the birth of Christ, we'll do something for the children, we'll have time in prayer, and this is a time in the body of Christ where many are going through very difficult circumstances and scenarios in their lives. And so, that's okay, Nancy. And so we're going to have this time of prayer. And so we want to encourage you to come, be those who would be praying for folks, as well as if you have some things that you would like folks to be praying with you and for you. It would be a great night. So really want to encourage strong showing uh, next Sunday night. Um, If you're here and you don't receive the e-news... Maybe you're new. Maybe you've not filled out a hillside information card. I have my graph paper that I'm going to send around. And what I would love, love, love for you to do is to put your name, and if you're willing, your phone number. We'll call you at strange hours. Um, We won't. (laughs) Only when I need something, right? Uh, And I'd like to, I'll just pass this around. Jeff, I'll start with you. If If your email has changed... If your phone number has changed or you would like to be included in the e-news, we generally send out an e-news once a week. It comes, I don't do it, but it'll have my email address generally attached to it. But it's just information and it's stuff that's happening within the church on the church calendar. And it gives generally all the details. We try and answer all the questions ahead of time so that you won't have to. If you read it and you go, well, now I have another question, you can just hit a reply and we'll try and get information to you. So that would be great to have that and have you included in that. All right. Well, we are in Revelation chapter 4. And... We, 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 we navigated uh, up to about verse 6 
but there were some questions associated with some things that are preceding. Now remember, by way of review, chapter 4 is a transition chapter. Again, with the divine outline, Revelation 1.19, Jesus instructing John on the island of Patmos to write the things which he has seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after these things or shortly hereafter. And chapter 1 is the things that John has seen. 19 really is the transitional verse. You come into chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, there were seven letters to the seven churches. There are many applications associated with those seven letters. We've looked at those in detail. One of which I hold personally, I believe that it is also a timeline. And I believe that because I believe that God is a God of order and he's a God of pattern. He seems to be consistent in his application of pattern. And we see it throughout the totality of the 66 books contained in scripture. And so... I would hold that those are somewhat prophetic in nature and they reveal seven epics of church history. I believe also that we are living presently in the seventh epic of church history, if you will. So this is the totality of the church from about 33 AD right up to present. Okay, and so now John is, as he's transitioned into verse or chapter 4, verse 1, it starts out with that Greek word metatauta, after these things. That should prompt the question in your mind, after what things? I believe the answer to that question is after the era or the age of the church, here are some things that will be happening. What we see in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 is the church present in heaven. I believe that verses 1 and 2 is a picture of what is known as the rapture of the church, the church being caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and the Lord takes us home to heaven, and we'll be with the Lord forever, hallelujah, but there is a prescribed timeline that will kick in. I believe wholeheartedly that it will be And it is determined by Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, 70 sevens had been declared for God's people Israel. 69 of those sevens have already occurred. But the 70th seven is yet to have occurred. After the rapture of the church, I believe that the, the next seven years, God's focus will be on the nation Israel, and that will be that 70th seven, if you will. The church will be in heaven. They're with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, back on earth, chapter 6 through 19, Revelation is going to show us what's going to be happening during those days so presently where we are we are at the point where john who was in the spirit on the lord's day from chapter one he now sees a window a door open in heaven he hears a voice like a trumpet and the voice says come up here and i will show you the things that will take place after this and so john immediately was in the spirit Now, we know he was already in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, so something else here is transpiring. 
I believe it is a picture or a type, if you will, of the rapture of the church. The translation, Paul writing to the church in Corinth reminds them, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but some of us will be changed. We will be changed in a moment. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. And we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so he tells that to the church in Thessalonica as well. So here's where we are. We covered a good portion of that that last week. But I want to make mention, because I had a question afterwards from my good brother, Gabe. And he asked, in reference to the one who sat on the throne. The one who sat on the throne. Because in chapter 4, there is a picture of the throne, if you will, and it's in the throne room. And someone's on the throne because there is the radiating of that jasper stone and that sardis stone and that emerald uh, bow is all the way around the throne. And so the question I referenced last week that Jesus himself is sitting on the throne. Well, you get into chapter 5 and the one who's holding the scroll is not Jesus. And so what's transpired there? And so to answer that question, he said, hey, did you mean that? And I said, well, I did mean that. Uh, Here's what I want. I just want to draw your attention to a scripture because I believe in the throne room at that time it is Jesus and the Father. Okay, look at chapter 3 and verse 21. It says, this is Jesus again speaking. These are his final words to the close, if you will, of the epic of the age of the church. He says, to him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So we have this picture that the throne that is in the midst of heaven, which is a key thing. Uh, Remember, thrones are referenced about 43 different times. And in Revelation, a large number of them, I think 14 in chapter 4 alone, thrones are mentioned. So there's a focal point here. But Jesus and God the Father, remember, he says he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Well, that throne is encompassing seats, if you will. And I believe that God the Father and God the Son are present there simultaneously, really because of verse 21. He says he will grant to sit on his throne. And I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Keep this in mind, too. The scripture refers to the fact that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. The throne of David did not exist during the days of his earthly ministry. This is something that's very, very interesting. Uh, There's a scripture in Genesis, in Genesis 49, that references the scepter would not leave Judah until Shiloh appears. Shiloh is another name given for Messiah. Now, how interesting that the scepter that ruled the ability to exercise judicial punishment up to and including the capital punishment of taking someone's life for a crime, if you will. For instance, blasphemy. It was the Jews that were in a position from the Sanhedrin. They could make decision to have someone's life taken by stoning. And the scripture declares the promise of God is that that scepter would not be removed from Judah, from the tribe of Judah, until Shiloh comes. Well, about 6 or 7 AD, the Jews lost that ability. 
by the Roman government. That's just an interesting picture. Here's the thing. They thought, Jews thought, that God had failed them, that God's word had failed. They believed that God's word had failed because they did not recognize that Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, that Jesus, in fact, was and is Messiah. And so that whole idea of thrones, again, it is a Jewish mindset, which our Western minds have a little bit of a difficulty understanding. But here Jesus is on the throne. The Father is on the throne. And some interesting history associated with Israel that I just referenced. But uh, if there's if there's other questions in relationship to thrones, we're going to try and answer some of those questions as we go. You'll note that there are 24 additional thrones in the throne room, and there are people who are sitting on those thrones, and they're wearing crowns. Those crowns are the Stephanos type of crown. It is really the victor's crown. And so who... We talked last week who, and we ended with this, who are the 24 that are sitting on those those thrones? So let let me read this portion, and it says, um, around the throne, verse 4, were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, There is at least five different references to thrones in the scripture. That doesn't mean God's limited to five thrones, or excuse me, did I say thrones? I meant crowns. There are at least five references to crowns that will be distributed uh, in heaven. It doesn't limit us to that number, but we know of at least five. The crown of life, James chapter 1 refers to, and it's for those who suffer for his sake. James chapter 1 and verse 12. Then there's the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, for those who love his appearing, those who are longing for the appearing of the Lord. Hey, I don't know about you, but in an ever-increasing fashion, in an ever-increasing manner, I am longing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I look around what is going on. I look at the violence. I look at the licentiousness of all that is around and things that are happening in the world and just the sheer amount of violence. It's overwhelming what I know I get exposed to. And it's just horrific. And I think, oh, Lord, come quickly. Just come quickly and save. So there's that crown of those who are longing. And it's called the crown of righteousness for those who loved his appearing or long for that appearing. The crown of glory, which is referenced in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. And uh, that really, that crown of glory is for those who feed the flock. Those who feed the flock. I just want to encourage you today. You may say, well, God's not called me to vocational ministry. Well, that's okay. That's okay. We still get to feed folks. Amen. Amen. So I want to encourage you, every opportunity you have in your life, two thoughts. Number one, all of us should be being mentored by someone. We should all have someone who's speaking into our lives, encouraging us in our walk with the Lord, and inspiring us, and correcting and rebuking us. Amen? Is it, are any of us exempt from that? No. We need folks to help us. We need folks to point out. We need folks to say, hey, I noticed this about your life. And here's the thing. If you're discovering in your life that people don't know when you are making errors of decision, 
spiritually. When people don't know you're making bad judgment calls in relationship to your decision making whether it's sin or not sin and oh i just kind of tend to give in over here in this area of my life here's the thing the beauty of the remedy for that the bible says confess your sins one to another that you might be healed ask yourself when was the last time i confessed some of my sins to one of my brothers or sisters so i'd say to every one of us we need accountability partners and we need to keep short accounts with god amen Amen. That was kind of puny. We need to keep short accounts with God. Amen. Amen. So you have, and this is, I want to challenge you tonight. If you're not making confession and believe me, you don't need to come. You don't need to call me. I'm not your guy, but find a brother or sister who's faithful. Now I'll tell you in my personal life, my wife is one of my accountability partners and that's a great relationship. God has built a bond between a husband and wife. But I also recognize there's probably some things that she doesn't necessarily feel comfortable talking to me. Well, she probably does. There may be some things that I'm not. But here's the thing. We should have someone that we can talk to that is of the same sex. Does that make sense? Gals should have a gal that they can talk to. Fellas should have some fellas. And here's the thing. If someone makes confession to you, it's easy for us sometimes to say, Oh, bro, I know how it is. Yeah, that's tough. Me too, man. God bless you. No, that's okay. I mean, it's okay to identify with someone, but we want to inspire them. Hey man, let's, what are you going to do the next time that that same opportunity comes up, right? We want to be able to challenge one another in those things. Okay. So that's, that's feeding the flock, so to speak. Does that make sense? Where we are spurring one another to good works. And it really takes the whole body of Christ functioning in that area. Every one of us has work in the kingdom of God. Amen? I mean, God saved you, and there is, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works that God has prepared in advance. So all of us, and we each, God has gifted every one of us, and the scripture refers to us employing those gifts. Well, one of those is encouragement, right? We want to inspire, we want to build people up, but we want to challenge them also. So, that's assignments, right? Make sure you're connected with people. But that's that, that's that crown of glory, if you will, and that's for those uh, who feed the flock. Another crown, the third, or fourth crown that is referenced is the crown of incorrupt, uh, incorruption, First uh, Corinthians chapter nine and twenty-five, and this is for those who uh, press on steadfastly. Press on steadfastly. How's your work? How's your walk with the Lord? How's your walk with the Lord tonight? Are you steadfast in the things of the Lord? Do you long for the things of the Lord? I think you probably do tonight because you're at church on Sunday night. <laughs> but here's the thing: I'm in reference to steadfast. Are you consistent in your walk with the Lord? Are you engaged in relationship with the Lord? Do you find times of solitude with God? Do you find your significance really from what the Lord has to say about your life rather than what other people might have to say about you? Steadfastness. Finding our significance in the Lord. That's important. And I want to encourage you in that area too. And hey, listen, if you're struggling in that area in terms of just being steadfast and walking and living in victory and being an overcomer, as the scripture declares, we are more than overcomers in Christ. If you've not been steadfast and you're not finding victory in your life, please 
when you talk to your brother or sister. This is an area, and by the way, you can call me at any time if you want to talk about things. I didn't mean don't call me. I'm saying uh, you can for sure. But very specifically, if you're struggling in your life, that's a time to reach out to someone in leadership. What I love about Hillside, we are an elder-driven church. We have, we have uh, eight elders that are part of our, really, our church council. And these men are gifted men, and they're solid in the Word of God. And any one of them could be an encouragement and an inspiration to all of us. And so just by way of, if you're struggling, reach out to someone. Will you tell someone, hey, I'm struggling. I have a hard time in this area of my life or I'm not just finding victory. It could be something real simple. It could be something simple, but it causes you to stumble. And that simplicity, sometimes it's just a brother or sister to walk alongside you that will help you get over that hump. I know for me, when I was lifting weights back in the million years ago when I was playing football, we would have what was called these blocks where we could not get over a certain weight. And so what we would do is we would slap more weight on the bench press, but we would have a brother stand over us and he would keep his arms like this. But slowly, after a couple of weeks, his hands would just be there, but he wasn't even touching the bar. And we would be able by that, just that thought that, hey, he's there helping me, got us over that weight limit, if you will. And he really wasn't, after a certain period of time, he wasn't even touching the bar. But the mental idea that someone's walking with me helped us overcome, if you will. And so I believe there's that opportunity for us. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I hope you have someone walking with you. We're navigating life. And it's, it's important that we do it together as the body of Christ. Remember, God has not made any loners. There's no islands in the kingdom of God, right? We all know that. You'll find, you, won't, you won't find the word saint in the Bible. It's always saints. It's always plural. Right? No loners in the kingdom. Okay. Uh, that fifth crown would be the crown of service. And um, this, uh, was it the crown of service? No, crown of rejoicing. Uh, I said service. I meant rejoicing. Hey, there's probably a crown for those who are doing service too. <laughs> uh, but crown of rejoicing. And that's found in First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. Uh, and that's uh, really for the soul winner. There's the soul winner's crown. And that's the crown of rejoicing. Let me say this in relationship to being a soul winner as well. The Bible says, he who, uh, he who walks with the wise grows wise. That was, I was going to say that second. But the first is, a wise man wins souls. That's what Proverbs tells us. A wise man wins souls. He who walks with the wise grows wise. So if you're not, you'd say, you know, my ministry is not soul winning. I just want to help you with that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, because that's all of our assignment. We're salt and light. We're salt and light. It was, uh, I think it was uh, Francis of Assisi, or Francis of Assisi, who said, uh, preach the gospel and, and if necessary, use words. Well, I believe it is necessary and we should use words, right? We need to communicate the gospel with folks. So we give folks an opportunity to respond to the good news. If you say, well, I'm really shy and I don't know how to share my faith. Well, I just want to encourage you. Practice makes perfect. That's what the statement is. But I believe practice makes permanent. And if we practice 
learning the Romans road, learning some different ways, the ABCs. Uh, and there's just some simple things that we can do just to share the good news of the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses two, three, and four. It's the simplicity of the gospel right there. And you, a couple verses could be memorized and now you can share. And believe me, this week, this week, tomorrow, you'll have an opportunity to be salt and light. The more ready we are, the more we'll likely see the opportunities and seize the opportunities. Okay, so those are, those are crowns that are referenced. Here's these 24 elders that are wearing crowns. Who are the 24 elders? Who are these guys? Who are they? Well, I could probably tell you who they're not. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 sort of tell us who they are. Uh, So we'll look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 uh, first. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So I think one could say... um, This is on the front end, if you will, of the rapture. So it's probably not tribulation saints, okay? It's not angels, because angels are not redeemed beings. Does that make sense? Okay. So some have thought, well, maybe these are angels. Um, it's, It's not the nation Israel, and it's probably not the patriarchs either of the Old Testament prior to Christ. Uh, most would say uh, it's probably the disciples and maybe others. Uh, the truth is we simply know that it is redeemed amongst men. Uh, so these sitting on these thrones, they're given uh, responsibility, if you will. Uh, and it says this, before the throne, verse 6, uh, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, I I prefer living being rather than creature. I think creature uh, was not necessarily a good translation there. But the first living being was like a lion. The second living being like a calf. The third living being like the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The four living beings around and in the midst of the throne. Some would hold that the eyes are a reference to their insight and to their knowledge and their information and that they are beings that have understanding. Understanding. For us on this side of eternity, we now know in part when we're there, the Bible says we will know in full. These seem to have some level of insight. Um, it's interesting to note that the living creatures, there was one like a lion, uh, one like a calf, or I believe also a better translation there would be ox, uh, one like a man, and the fourth like an eagle. Uh, 
some interesting patterns that I'll simply show. These same aspects seem to be, and we see these faces in Ezekiel's uh, revelation as well, but there seems to be a picture of Christ even in the midst of these living creatures. Four aspects of Christ. The uh, first being the lion. Christ was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, The second, the ox. He is the suffering servant, if you will. Uh, Man, he is the son of man. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And the eagle, he is in that royalty or rulership or dominion, if you will. And it's interesting to note that if you look at the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we seem to see a picture also as these Gospels were written to certain groups of people, if you will. For instance, Matthew was written to the Jews. Interesting to note that he began his genealogy with Abraham, the first of the promise of God, if you will, and the father of faith. And he uh, is uh, referencing in in answering the question what Jesus did or what Messiah did, it answers the question what Jesus said. And so Matthew, written to the Jews, emphasizes what Jesus said and reveals the face, if you will, of a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark, on the other hand, was written to Rome and reveals the Son of Man, if you will. Now, it's interesting, of the four Gospels, Mark is the only Gospel that does not have a genealogy. Most people are familiar with two genealogies, that in uh, Matthew and that in Luke. But John also has a genealogy, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But Mark doesn't have a genealogy. And it's interesting that Mark really references what Jesus did and is that picture of the oxen or the servant. And in terms of pedigree, in terms of one's genealogy, no one's interested in the genealogy of a servant. And so there's just a little picture there that comes out. Luke is writing to the Greeks. He references the bloodline or the royal bloodline. Again, Matthew, the legal bloodline through Abraham, the, uh, the, the bloodline, the legal bloodline. Luke begins his genealogy with Adam, the first man. And he is emphasizing what Jesus felt, those things that are associated in that face of man, if you will. And then finally, John, uh, who also authored this book under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he is, he is writing to the church, and he emphasizes the eternality of God. His genealogy is found in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14 reminds us and encourages us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So as to his beginnings, they are from everlasting. He is not a created being. He is the son of God. He is deity. And John focuses on what uh, Jesus did. In terms of what Jesus did, it was who he was. And it's that uh, eagle picture. So interesting 
little piece, side note. In the history, again referencing these patterns that God has, when you look at the nation Israel, when they began their wilderness journey, when they would set up camp and reside in a place, very interesting the first thing that was established was the area for the tabernacle and the Levite tribe would set up this encampment, if you will, of where the tabernacle would be. Then in four regiments, if you will, three tribes each on the north, three tribes each on the south, three tribes each on the west, and three tribes each on the east. It is said in history, that each of those tribes carried an an insignia as well that referenced those three, or excuse me, the groupings of three in those four distinct areas. Interesting also that their boundaries were not to exceed that of the Levites. And so when the camp was set, when the Levites established that area for the tabernacle, that was the width in which the camp to the south would be. That was the width in which the camp to the north would be, and that to the east, and that to the west. So imagine this now. In the midst of the Israelites wandering, when they set up on the plains of Moab, and uh, Balaam, uh, Balak, uh, he hired Balaam to come and to cast a curse, if you will, on the nation Israel. When they came up on the ridge, when they looked down upon the encampment, what they would see are these tribes that were set up in a camp, and the width of each of those camps was the width of that tabernacle in the center, and it would actually, if you can imagine, just look this way, and here's the tabernacle, and you had a tribe of, or three tribes going off to the east, Three tribes off to the west, same width. Three tribes to the north. And three tribes to the south. How interesting that the groupings, that the tribe that had the most people, over 186,000 encamped, was the tribes that went straight down. And so the imagery as they looked out onto the plains of Moab would have been a sign of the cross, and right at the center of the cross was the tabernacle, the very presence of God. Pretty powerful, and you can read that in Numbers chapter 2. They enumerate those, and you'll see how that uh, lines out. It's very, very interesting. But history would tell us, we can't necessarily pull it from the Bible, that those tribes had insignias, and that those insignias are the exact same insignias, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. And so you'd have, again, those four faces around the throne, if you will, seeing that pattern. And so some interesting thoughts associated with that. Um, So they're crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Let me stop here for just a moment, because a question, another question that came up, 
in relationship to creation. And here we see, again, the creation is attributed uh, to the Lord. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all things. And so, what does that look like? What what does that mean to you and I? I said a couple of weeks ago that I have a belief in a young earth. And what I mean by that is a literal translation of Genesis and the Genesis account in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, that means... If what I believe is true, and let me, let me give a small disclaimer, and I'll say small. Um, the disclaimer is, what you and I believe about the creation is not going to have an impact on where we spend eternity. Everybody get that? We'll all probably check out that tape when we get to heaven and say, hey, can I see that DVD or however it's recorded for us? And we'll get to maybe watch that. That's going to be an exciting day. Some of us will go, oh, I knew it. And others of us will go, oh, and here I thought. It'll be okay, right? No one's going to go, ah, I got you. It's not how it is. We're not keeping score, so to speak. Let me also say this. What you believe in relationship to the book of Revelation, at the end of the day, it's not going to determine and it's not going to change God. So whether you're a pre-trib rapture person, whether you're a mid-trib rapture person, whether you're a post-trib rapture person, Maybe you're a no-rapture person. If you're a no-rapture person, but you have faith in Jesus Christ, and when the rapture comes at the beginning of the tribulation, just before tribulation, uh, when that all transpires, uh, you'll be happy that you're there. Amen? Amen. And if it happens midstream, we'll be happy that we go. And if it happens at the end, we might scratch our heads and say, what was this all about? But we'll be happy that we were there. Amen? And if it doesn't happen... I'll be like confused. (laughs) We just know that God is in charge. Does that make sense? And so I have a strong belief in relationship to the rapture because I believe that the scripture bears it out. And I believe that even the pattern of God's work bears that out. And my thoughts associated with creation. Some would say, well, those are extraordinary views. What about the genealogies of the the rock strata? What about the ages of all those rocks? What about carbon dating? What about the fossils? What about dinosaurs? How does that all work? How does that all work? I believe it's simple. I believe that dinosaurs and man existed together. And I believe that Adam not only named all of the Adams... Animals, Adams, animals. But those animals that we call dinosaurs, he gave them names also. And I believe after about 1,500 years of violence and wickedness, God said, I'm going to destroy all flesh. And he saved eight people and two of every animal. Now, What's difficult for us to understand and comprehend sometimes is what that pre-flood world must have looked like. Because Peter tells us the world that then was, was destroyed. The world that then was, was destroyed. It was destroyed by the deluge, the flood, the cataclysmic flood that came upon the surface of the earth. But a careful study of 
the book of Genesis would reveal that God caused the waters below to be gathered into one place. And the expanse between the waters below and the waters above, he called sky. What were the waters above? I believe that that was a vapor canopy that was encapsulating the earth. And the sun was outside of that. And the sun, having this translucent water vapor canopy all the way around this ball of water, would have had several things transpire. Number one, the UV rays would not be able to penetrate through that vapor canopy. The UV rays are those things that cause you and I to what? Age. So what would be the natural assumption of the age of people prior to the flood? They would live longer. We have the Genesis account. The oldest man to have lived, 969 years. Okay, it's very interesting. The infrared or the heat would penetrate because they move at a different wavelength and they would go through just like in your vehicle if you park outside on a hot day, you open up your car door, it's even hotter on the inside because those infrared waves would come through but then they would bounce around on the inside and you would have a universal temperature. No polar ice caps. An animal like the Diplodocus that has a 32-foot neck has a certain viscosity in its blood. At a warm temperature, its blood would be thinner, and so its heart would be able to pump the blood 32 feet up to its brain. When the flood came, and God caused the water to fall for the very first time, it remember, it had never rained before Noah entered into the ark. Never rained. And when he caused the vapor canopy to condense and to fall, all of a sudden, just like when you open up your car door, where does the heat go? It's released. When the vapor canopy is ruptured, where does the heat go? It's released. What would happen to that universal temperature? It would have a rapid cooling. What happens with rapid cooling? Do you know that every animal in the animal kingdom has in its DNA... By nature, hibernation. Hibernation. It gets cold enough, animals take a little rest. You imagine on the ark how excellent it would be as the temperature got cold that the animals decided to take a little, take a little snooze or a big snooze. You wouldn't have to worry about feeding them. You wouldn't have to be worrying about cleaning up after them. Someone say amen. <laughs> right? And they'd sleep. And do you know that of all of the animals that we know as dinosaurs, and most of us are most familiar of dinosaurs from the Jurassic period. The Jurassic period is when the terrible lizard like Tyrannosaurus rex uh, was supposed to have lived 360 million years ago. Of all of the dinosaurs, the average size of a dinosaur, anybody want to take a stab at what the average size of the dinosaurs is? It's the size of a sheep. That's the average size. Yeah, it's alarming, isn't it? Because we're immediately, we think of the Diplodocus, that's just massive, or the Supersaurus, that's even bigger. Or T-Rex, or Allosaurus, and some of these really big, big ones. But there were hundreds, if not thousands more, that were smaller, so that the average size is the size of a sheep. Now, are you ready for this? Because this is important that we understand. 
They say that more than half of the animals that have ever walked the face of the earth are extinct now. And we have at least 18,000 species known today. So if there were two of every species and half are gone and we have 18,000 now, how many? So you'd have 36,000 and if you had two of every kind, you'd have 72,000, right? 72,000. Everybody with me? Simple math? The volumetric capacity of the ark. Volume. 522 standard size rail cars. Now, the last time you got stopped by a train and you decided to count the cars, if you got over a hundred cars, you are looking at a very big train and you were sitting there for a very long time. The volumetric capacity of the ark filled with sheep. Are you ready for this? 125,000 sheep would have fit on the boat. And we only need room for 72,000. Easily getting all of the animals two by two onto the ship that Noah built for God. So when the deluge came and the terrible beasts and those big dinosaurs, when the temperatures changed... All of a sudden, not only the fact that they were now knee-deep in water and pretty soon neck-deep in water and pretty soon over their head in water, but the temperature change would have caused their blood to be less viscous, and so their ability to live would have been impossible. And so those dinosaurs would die off very rapidly. It's very possible, and I believe plausible, and I believe definitive, that dinosaurs were on the ark. We forget also that God could have caused two young ones to enter onto the ark, not full-grown ones. Does that make sense also? But even at that, they would have died relatively quickly because the atmosphere had been changed. So, some very interesting dynamics. If you would like to do some further reading on some of those things and the ideas associated with a young earth, Dr. Henry Morris, who's now gone on to be with the Lord... He is the founder of uh, the Institution of Creation Research. I think it's ICR or R, is it R, ICR or CRI maybe, Creation Research Institute. Uh, I think you just do a little search, Dr. Henry Morse, you'll find it. Um, a great book that is written for lay people. It's called Scientific Creationism. And he goes through a lot of the science associated with that. And so here we have this reference to Jesus being the creator. A question came up last week, and I thought I would just take a moment and share my thoughts on the young earth and why I believe in the Genesis record. Here's another thing to remember. Because I reference Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 as being a timeline, if you will, of the age of the church, this 2,000 years of history. Something to remember also. Remember Peter quoted from the Psalms that one day is as a thousand years as a thousand years is one day. When you go to the Genesis record of the seven days of creation, six days God did all of his creative work, and on the seventh day God rested. Do you remember what he said to Adam when he told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? 
He said, for in the day that you eat of it, you will what? You will surely die. How old was Adam when he died? He was 962 years. According to the Lord, he died in the day that he ate of it. Does that make sense? If one day is a thousand, he died within that day. And we know he also died spiritually at the moment he was disobedient, right? We know some things uh, transpired. We talked about that this morning in church. But uh, that idea, those six days of creation are really a timeline, I believe, of the history of humanity. Do you realize right now that those who are more diligent than myself have gone through the genealogies and the ages of the Bible and they have determined, uh, I think it was Johann Kepler who established the 4004 B.C., the beginning of creation. 4004 B.C. to present puts us here for about 6,000 years. Six days. Six days. What did God do on the seventh day of creation? He rested. What will happen with the earth at the end on the seventh day? I believe it will be the millennial reign of Christ, where Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years. Day seven. Day seven. So when we say we believe that Christ is coming soon, there are compelling reasons for us to believe. Listen, the prophet Hosea said, in the third day he will visit us. In the third day. He'll visit us. In fact, just turn back in your Bibles real quickly to the prophet Hosea. Uh, let's see if I can find it readily. Well, I'm going the wrong way. Of course, I'm not readily finding. Here we go. So Hosea, look at Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6 says, Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will, not, uh, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will uh, bind us up. After two days, he will receive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. How many days has the Lord been gone? He's been gone two days, according to his calendar, or 2,000 years. Well, on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Well, that day is coming. Some would say, hey, day three is immediately on the horizon, right? I mean, we can do some simple math here, and we can figure it out. It's, it's on the horizon. We're living in the days. Uh, remember, too, Jesus referenced the generation that sees the fig tree bud again. The nation Israel becoming a nation again, May 28, 1948. That generation will not pass before the end. Well, how long is a generation? That's a good question. I would hold that the generation is probably best described as a hundred years and we see that in that uh, Israel would not be in bondage but in the fourth generation they would be delivered and they were in bondage for 400 years or 430 years and so a generation is probably somewhere right around 100 years well 48 to current and you got to back out the seven-year tribulation 
Daniel 70th 7. So we're, things are winding down, right? We got about 27 years and I know we're, no man knows the day or the hour. So we don't try and figure that stuff out. But remember, remember, and these are, these are things, just little tidbits for us to remember. Remember, Jesus chastised the Pharisees because they did not know the signs of the time. They didn't know. And this is important to remember, and I'll, I'll close with that, and we'll pick up chapter 5 next. We'll start with chapter 5, not next week, because next week we'll have the Christmas special, but uh, we'll come back into chapter 5. But remember these things. Jesus chastised them for not knowing the day of their visitation. Not knowing the day of visitation. Which tells us they should have known. He says, how is it that you can interpret the sky? You say this when you see the sky in the morning and we'll have this kind of a day. Or if you see this evening sky, it will be this kind of day the following day. He says, how is it that you can interpret the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times which you're living in? You see, the prophet Daniel had prophesied these 77s upon the nation Israel. He said there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And then he talks about Messiah coming. And he said, what will set it off is when the word goes forth to rebuild the city and the walls of Jerusalem until Messiah, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Well, when when did God begin that calendar? When did God begin that 69 sevens? And 69 sevens, incidentally, is 483 years or 173,880 days to the day. To the day. When the commandment to rebuild was issued, that's when it started. Well, folks, just so you're aware, Nehemiah was given that charge. Nehemiah was given that charge on the first day of the month of Nisan. In 445 B.C. You can look that up extra biblically in Britannica, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. It'll tell you exactly when that happened. Under the reign of King Artaxerxes, uh, Nehemiah was downcast before the king. And the king said, why are you downcast? And he said, why should I not be downcast? My, the, the city where my fathers are buried, it's in ruins. And he says, what's your bidding? He says, send me to rebuild. And he sent him with letters. And those letters marked the beginning So the children of Israel should have known. They knew when that commandment had been given. They should have been able to count 483 years. They should have been able to enumerate the number of days, 173,880 days. And it comes right up to the day. To the day. How did the Magi know? That's a valiant question, and that's a hearty question. Where did the Magi know? those priests, if you will, in the Persian kingdom. Well, Daniel himself, under the reign, after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Cyrus came in, who is the king of the Persians, and Daniel, Josephus tells us, I think it's in his 12th edition, that uh, he handed Cyrus the scroll of Isaiah and showed him what we now have as Isaiah chapter 45, but he showed him on the scroll where his name was written down by name three times 170 years before Cyrus was even born. And Cyrus 
put Daniel in charge, he became what's known as the rag or the rab mag, which was the head of the magi. And most would hold that it was the Daniel leadership that ultimately at the time of the magi at the the birth of Christ, that's where they heard of the star of Israel. And so some interesting pieces with that. So great question. And there's, if you want more information on that, there's lots of information about that. Um, but here's the, here's the interesting thing in terms of those days. The 173,880 days to the day leads right up to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. What did he do on that day? He set everything up. Reminding us that our king would come riding on the foal of a donkey. And he said to his disciples, two of you go into such and such area and you'll find a donkey tied and and the foal next to the donkey. Untie them and bring them to me. And if the master of the house comes out and says, what are you doing with the donkey? Say, the master has need of them. And that is exactly what transpired. They brought the donkey, they put their blankets over him, and he got on the donkey and he began his entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And as he made his way down the hill to that gate the people began to cut the branches off of the trees and they began to lay, lay them in the street, laying their clothing, waving the branches, proclaiming Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David, that was a messianic term. And they were declaring, and if you ever wonder what's happening in Jerusalem and you're ever wondering what's really being said by the leaders of Israel to, to Jesus, you only need to look at what the reaction of the Pharisees is or was. And that will tell you their understanding of what was happening. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, you have to stop the people from saying what they're saying. They're claiming that you are God. And Jesus said these words keenly. He said, this day, this day, if the people stop crying out, the very rocks will cry out. Because it was the day that God had prophesied. And Jesus had chastised him. You should have known the day of your visitation. But you've missed it. You've missed it. And he encourages us to know the signs of the times. He tells us, Matthew chapter 24. He tells us what the beginning pains are. And what the signs of the times are. And so folks... It calls for each one of us to be students of the Word of God, to study the Scriptures. A workman who need not be ashamed on the day of visitation. Amen? And so we spend time going verse by verse, and I probably bounced all around tonight. Um, I, I, I had some notes that I was going to get into. We were supposed to finish chapter 5 tonight, and we didn't even actually get to it. But it's important for us to be encouraged and inspired and to know the scripture and to know the signs of the times. Does that make sense? I just want to encourage you. Read with us as we go. Read through chapter 5. Do a little bit of research. And make sure when you're doing research, if you take, if you do Google searches for things on the web, remember, not everything you read on the internet is true. <laughs> so you always want to measure things up according to the word of God. Remember to always let Scripture interpret Scripture. Does that make sense? That's very, very important. Okay? And so we, we, these allusions from Revelation to the Old Testament, these signs and these symbols, we look back to the Old Testament for their interpretation. If you weren't here this morning, we talked about the seven-sealed scroll. 
that was written within and without, and we drew from the scriptures out of Jeremiah chapter 32, out of the book of Ruth, that this, in fact, was the title deed, and those uh, terms of redemption are on the outside, and what is the title deed of the earth written on the inside? We will look at that again Sunday night, two weeks from now, and the implications for each one of us. The implications. Here's one to leave tonight being reminded of. Remember, God the, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, back somewhere in eternity, the decision was made that he would become flesh. He would become flesh. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I submit to you tonight because he loves you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It warps my mind. He became flesh. God made man in his own image and God chose to become as that image taking on flesh forever. The Bible tells us there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He's fully God, fully man, but he took on flesh because he loves us. If you wonder sometime, are you loved? Anybody here ever wonder, am I loved? Maybe you're in a maybe you're in a marriage and you wonder, oh, do they love me? Do they not? Is everything what is this? Am I loved? Woe is me. Anybody here ever have pity parties? And don't do that. There you go. <laughs> hey, go get a puppy. <laughs> no, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And, and I really will close for the seventh time tonight. <laughs> Here's the thing. Sometimes we buy into the lie. And then we look to fuel by manipulating people. Could be in a relationship. We, we, we down talk. We, we say things like, well, nobody, nobody likes me. And we, we, we build on something that's not even true. And then we, we work people on something that's not true. And we seek significance from things that are temporal anyway, rather than seeking significance from the one who is true and revealed that we are loved and we're never alone. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And he's the one that really does know us inside and out. We can't even make statements like, well, nobody knows how I feel. Well, maybe no one in your immediate circle knows how you feel, but maybe what you need to do is get into a closer relationship with the Lord because he does know how you feel. And he's able to help you in your time of need because he loves us. Because he loves us and he took on humanity, Hebrews reminds us that he has been afflicted and has faced every kind of temptation that we have and knows 
how we feel, and he is able to minister to us in our time of need. That's a powerful reality. We have a high priest like that. He's been touched with our infirmities, if you will. Thanks be to God. You're loved. Look at your neighbor tonight and say, hey, you're loved. You're loved. Go ahead. Tell him. That's good. All right. Will you stand with me tonight? Let's, let's pray. It is good to be in God's house. Next Sunday night, 6 o'clock, a combined worship service, a night of hymns, a night of carols, a night of celebration, the birth story of our Lord and Savior. And uh, I think seven pastors will be involved in the actual service and the different elements. We will have communion together and uh, cross those denominational lines, kind of laying our differences aside, focusing on those things that we hold true that are the basic doctrine things, the deity of Christ and the doctrines of salvation, if you will. Thanks be to God for the body. Amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the truths contained within the word. Lord, whether our thoughts on eschatology, the future, Uh, Lord, align 100% with what we talked about tonight. At the end of the day, what's going to transpire will be that which is true. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're in charge and we're not. And so, Lord, we pray and we say, even as in Revelation chapter 22, the bride says, come. We say, Lord Jesus, come. We do long for your appearing. God, we want to be actively engaged, recognizing that we don't want to be caught off guard, that servant who was unaware of your return. God, we want to be actively engaged so that when you come, you will find us engaged and active in the kingdom and that we would do things that are well-pleasing in your sight. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, not to be building our own kingdoms, but really to be building up the kingdom of God as Christ's ambassadors. Lord, let us have a clearer understanding in our own daily living of what our priorities ought to be. And so, Lord, may you transform us from the inside out for your glory and for your namesake. Will you go before us this week, make rough places smooth, make crooked places straight? Will you cut through bars of iron and gates of bronze and open doors that no man can shut? And, Lord, shut doors that no man can open. And that, God, we would magnify your name in all that we do, making famous the name of Jesus. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said a strong amen. 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 The Lord bless you and keep you. Have a great week.